بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم. There is a figure in Islamic history that I don't know. Some of you might not have heard of. His name is Abu Yazid al-Bustani. He was a Sufi, and what he says in the context of Surah Maryam, I actually I just like and I want to share. He says, "Amir, okay, first I'll read it." He says, "Kabatu al-abdah thalasina sana, faraitu qailan yaqulu li ya yazid khazaina mamlu'a min al-ibadat, fa in aratta al-wusul, fa alayka bil-zilla wal-iftiqar wal-rida." وَلِذَا قَالْ عِنْدَ دُخُولِهِ عَلَمَ الْحَقِيقَةِ And so it goes on. So Abu Yazid al-Bustami says that I worshipped for 30 years and I did not arrive. He did not arrive to al-Haqiqah, meaning that he did not arrive to that state of wood where you feel you love Allah and Allah loves you. You, you, you have an intimate relationship where you hear the voice of the divine within you. You hear the voice of Allah within you. Um, and where hardships don't break you and where you um, you meet hardships with a, a a, a level of serenity and acceptance, um, as if they're um, as if they're kisses from your beloved, as if your beloved has just kissed you again. Um, so he says, for thirty years I've worshipped, and then I he saw a vision, a dream, and it says that you your 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 coffers are full of worship for 30 years now. But what you miss, what you do not have in your coffers is the zilla wal iftikar, is that level of humility in which you completely um, disciplined your ego and rida and acceptance. And only when Abu Yazid al-Bustami worked on that did he reach, and he's one of the great Sufis of history. So for to, to say that, you know, Abu Yazid al-Bustami reached, it, it's, it's, um, it's again one of these perils of wisdom that we should listen to. Okay. Put on ears. <laughs> now the world has some noise again. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. Um, that was uh, so amazing. So uh, thank you so much. I mean, I, I know, I saw how hard, I mean, as soon as he knew, like, um, for people who don't know, like, he, he prays and, you know, the way that we choose suras, the way he chooses suras to present is through prayer. And so when 
it became clear that it was Sura Maryam, it was like immediately the weight on his shoulders was like crushing. He was like, I want to pray again and I want to ask for a different Sura. <laughs> I don't want that one. But, and of course, I was like so excited and so happy. But, um, that's, that's often our relationship. She's excited <laughs> and unburdened. Yeah. We've been 30 years of that. Excited, burdened. Excited, half burdened. Half full, half empty. Yeah, all of that. Um, but, you know, I mean, alhamdulillah, it was... Um, I feel like we're starting to get, you know, sort of the woman power, like, themes really emerging now. I mean, starting out talking about hijab. And actually, I wanted to say... Um, we have a lovely guest with us today. We were talking after um, we were on break. Um, the the woman who I mean I think people have probably read um, the you know the writings on hijab. Obviously, we get a lot of people asking you know the question about hijab. Um, and so, the last fatwa that is on the Search for Beauty website, if anyone is interested in finding it, it's www.searchforbeauty.org. Um, was largely um, instigated by um, an, a very long email from our guest um, asking this question about hijab. She grew up wearing hijab her entire life, grew up in a Muslim community, um, was you know, a high-powered lawyer, doing a lot of um, you know, work, um, interfaith in you know, social justice, human rights, and was finding that wearing the hijab was a barrier to her ability to make a difference because people saw her in her hijab and that was enough to really dismiss her and her intelligence. And she's probably one of the smartest people I've ever met. Um, and I don't say that just because she's here, but I mean, I've seen her in action. She's extremely articulate, extremely, you know, just very impressive. And even the way that she approached the due diligence of understanding this whole issue and, you know, wrote very thoughtfully about it and asked Dr. Hallett and waited very patiently for an answer. Um, you know, it just, like, I, now we've known each other for years. And so, um, you know, this was a really difficult test because obviously she's trying to do a lot of good for Islam and the hijab was getting in the way of that. And it was a huge thing in her Muslim community to make the decision to remove the hijab. And when she finally did decide to do that because she felt that it was interfering with her purpose on this earth, the backlash um, and the, the blowback was so difficult, and I think it continues to be, that it is a constant test. And so I think a lot of what we learned in this surah was actually very apropos um, because I think that the level of tests that she and her family have received on a number of different levels um, has been, you know, enough to shake most people's faith, um, and yet she's still here and still fighting um, for a lot of people um, who need help and who other Muslims actually will not stand up for. So, you know, may Allah bless her. But anyway, so it was a really perfect time for us to discuss this and just to share that, I mean, me personally, um, like, I, you know, one of the things that I think the group here understands is, like, we've been going through these surahs since last summer and personally like when I see through prayer the particular chapters that have been you know sent our way in the order in which they've come and you know just the messages and the teachings they're so pertinent to the people that are in this particular group and also in what is happening in the world that I take them personally as like you know God is directing us and this is like another sort of opportunity to have a, a very personal revelation given what we're going through and um, so I've, I like this surah in particular is just, it's so exciting in some ways because I really believe in, in the power of women and I really believe in 
um, the time is right now that you know women um, should be supported and feel empowered to stand up for what they believe in. And you know we've been in this group through so many tests, and it's been very clear. It's like once if you're shaking that date tree and you're putting in that effort, and God will come in and help you. And I think it's time for women to rise up. And I think hearing and learning everything that comes across in this sura um, about you know the role model, um, how important. Muslims are, women are in the whole Islamic journey. Um, it's just very inspiring. So thank you, and I, the, I know you, he barely got any sleep last night. He, you know, and I think, may God bless you and protect you. This was amazing. It was really, really wonderful. So thank you. Uh, about, uh, you know, You know, I'm I'm not a woman, and so I feel very um, uh, very uncomfortable talking about the hijab. Um, but please understand, I am not I am not opposed to the hijab. What I, I am opposed to is the dogmatic way that we approach legal issues, including the hijab, when. When I, the, from that same kind, there, there's a woman in, uh, in Detroit, right? The, the woman who was thrown out of the window. A, a woman who, because of the hijab, because she wants to take off the hijab, her son threw her out of the window and killed her. When I hear something like that, I mean, But at the same time, as I said, there are different contexts in which I will go to, I will save no effort to defend the right of a woman to exercise that choice. If she believes that this is what Allah wants from her. There is a woman from Kuwait who wrote me recently Again, struggling, I, I, I intend to, I've been intending for a while now to respond to her, but I, I, I get so many messages, I just, it's hard. About, again, about the hijab, and it, it's, if it's a very personal decision. It's a, if, if after looking at what evidence, whatever evidence you look at, your conscience is not comfortable, then please do not take it off. If you feel that you are doing something wrong by taking it off, then, then you shouldn't. Then that is your revelation. But in, on the other hand, if you are wearing it, and you are hating your life, and as some as has happened sometimes, angry at God, and in a state of constant grievance because of a piece of scarf, then that's out of all proportion, and you probably shouldn't be wearing it because there is no justification to be angry at God because of a piece of scarf. Uh, it is not about hair or not hair, uh, the issue is modesty. And 
modesty is a very sophisticated institution. There are muhajabas who have not an air of modesty. I mean, I've seen that in Egypt, and I've seen that in the U.S. There are muhajabas that are, frankly, make me, um, uh, uh, what is the, when your face goes red? Blush. Uh, uh, there are muhajabas <laughs> that make me blush, to be really honest. Um, I mean, um, I, 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 in, I've heard some muhajabas talk in ways that I, I think if, if I ever talk this way, I'd probably have a heart attack and die. Um, I mean, in terms of explicitness, I, I've seen a muhajaba do a dance on a pole, a stripper's pole. I mean, she's closed, wearing the hijab. But the dance was, I blushed. I was so embarrassed. I, I just, I, I, but at the same time, that, so, but there are people, it's not about, it, it's about modesty. The beauty of modesty. The, 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 the majesty of modesty. And modesty is something that both men and women can either have or not have. And it's about the way you carry yourself, the way your thought process works, the way your eye move, your eyes move, the way that you use your mouth and your speech. It, it, it's it's a universe. It is the most beautiful thing in the world, but there's no shortcut to it. You you don't just have modesty because you wear a piece of cloth. Uh, it, modesty is is a high virtue and it's embarrassing when we keep dealing with modesty as if it's just an issue of uh, segregation and, and clothing. It, it, I mean, it's, of course, obviously certain clothing is immodest by, by definition, but that's, you know, we don't, that's not what we're talking about. Alhamdulillah. <clears throat> and then the other, sorry, the last thing I was going to say is the idea of sacrificing for future generations um, when it comes to the idea of like, you know, women sacrificing or all of us sacrificing, but supporting women and women taking that extra step to sacrifice for future generations. It's, it's so inspiring because, you know, we see like the impact of one, one person, one woman. I mean, the women, I know so many super women and I truly believe, like, I mean, women have the ability, sorry, men, but women are amazing. You know, they can do so much. They juggle so much just by the nature of the life that we live in today, the speed we live in, that all the different things that they need to be responsible for and handle. It's like, you know, women have never lived in a time like today where there are so many challenges and so many things to do, the speed of life and the technologies that also advance the speed of life and the, the expectation for things to get done. And women do it beautifully. And I don't know that men can handle it as well as women can personally. But so that just inspires me that women, I believe women can make all the difference. And so I hope that inshallah more people will, will hear 
this. I learned so much. I mean, you know, 27 years as a Muslim, I didn't know so much of this. And um, and other people were saying, you know, they went to Catholic school, you know, didn't even know these things about Miriam and John the Baptist and all of that. So I hope that this knowledge will spread to other other people and other women and inspire them to do amazing things. So thank you again. Um, okay, so who would like to start off the Q&A? Anybody here? Oh, actually, let me ask, what is the, um, what is the vicar? Oh, yes. The, the vicar is, how could I forget? Um, I, unfortunately, I have to, when I remember the score, I have to remember them in sequence. So for, for, for people who don't know, when, when I ask the question, what's the vicar, it's because there are certain vicar in, in each chapter that um, the sheikh focused on that really opened the meaning for this chapter when he was doing over the over the, the course of his life, not just in preparation for this this session. Sheikh, that if the hadith is, if you bring happiness to the believers, you please Allah. And I feel really pleased right now. So. <laughs> 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 Jan will tell you about the hadith, that if you bring happiness to the believers, you've pleased Allah. And Jana is very, very happy right now. Oh, <laughs> under that. It brought Jana happiness. <laughs> Ibrahim is personally very happy. He's tired, but he's very happy. Did you tell people about Ibrahim? <laughs> Ibrahim is a hero. Yeah, I'm, I'm so hero-like. I sit on the couch for four hours. <laughs> we have a guest. We probably our youngest member for the uh, the halakas. Ibrahim is 14, and he like sat through almost all of it. Alhamdulillah, and yeah, so we're very proud of you, and may Allah bless you for I, I, every moment. I, I, want, I wish, I, I want to drag me to come sit in, in, in these it's, 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 it's verse 65, that's why. رَبُّ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضُ مَا بَيْنَهُمَا فَعْبُدْهُ وَاسْطَبِرْ لِعِبَادَتِهِ هَلْ تَعْلَمُ لَهُ سَمِيَّةِ 65. Okay, so no takers in the room? Okay, so then I have a question. You mentioned briefly about, you, and you waited for me, thank you so much, about um, the idea of Mariam being a prophet. Mm. And you said that there are different schools that believe that there were various women in, that were prophets and then schools that didn't think that she was a prophet. But I just wanted to get a sense of like majority versus minority. Oftentimes you say, what's the majority view? Like just to yeah. know a little more about that. The mi minority view is that she was a prophet um, and not again. I'm not. It's not surprising. Um, uh, but um, it, it, it's a, although it's a minority view, but it it you know some major um, scholarly names like even Ibn Hazm who says that she was a prophet, and the it. For for them, it all hinged on the fact that 
she received or she was object of interaction with the angel Gabriel that uh, there is evidence or I mean there are there there textual evidence that only a Nabi um, would receive interaction or messages from the angel Gabriel and since the, the Quran says that Gabriel did interact with Mary, they argued that she must have been a prophet. Um, the majority view it says that she wasn't. Um, I, I'm not, I mean, it, it's not, they, they simply, I mean, although there is a distinction between a Nabi and a Rasul, a, a, a Rasul brings a book uh, but a Nabi is someone who receives revelation. But they they see her more like as Khadr, uh, a Siddiq, a, a holy person, rather than a prophet. Um, but yeah, so, but there's, there, uh, in, um, it's, it's interesting because the, the the minority view that holds that she's a prophet also holds that there were other female prophets in, in Islam. But we don't know anything about them, right? The, we, don't, we do little. I mean, not a lot. But, the, I mean, we could talk about this in, in another session, the, the, the reported female prophets. Chris, can I ask a follow-up on that? Yeah. A follow-up question, is there, in the tradition, do they speak about the juxtaposition of John the Baptist and Jesus and Maryam and Zachariah and Zachariah being concerned about the idea of inheritance of his knowledge and prophethood, that that could serve as an evidentiary factor for the fact that if you're juxtaposing John the Baptist and Isa and Zachariah and Maryam, that if... Zechariah is then Maryam also is in terms of in, in inheritance that Isa is inheriting what uh, Maryam has done in a sense. Oh, that's interesting. Whether um, I, I don't remember reading anything about Isa inheriting. Can you repeat the question? The, the question is what because Zechariah was so worried about uh, Yahya inheriting his role, whether there is any discussion as to Jesus inheriting Miriam's role. Um, I don't remember reading anything about that, but I mean the, um, the interesting thing is, is that there, there, there are some who even say that the reason uh, what I, what what you do find in some sources is that the argument that in fact it was Maryam who inspired Zachariah to pray for a uh, a son after he had given up on the idea. That 
because he, he was quite advanced in age, and, and why hasn't he prayed for it before? And there are <laughs> some sources that say that the reason that when he saw Maryam was the recipient of a miracle, the, the, the food, and that Maryam is the one that tells him, well, if you're worried about uh, an inheritor, have you prayed? And it's interesting that because then Maryam is actually playing an active role in directing Zachariah. Um, so that that does exist, and although she's quite young and he's quite old, uh, but he takes her advice. Um, and also, even after the birth of uh, Jesus, Maryam is a central role because uh, although Zachariah's wife is her aunt and um, John the da so John the Baptist is same age as, as Jesus uh, more or less uh, and and all of Zacharias is much older and her aunt is much older uh, in the tradition their interactions Miriam is always the voice of authority she's always the one that they, they go to her for direction and advice. And she's always like um, um, the one that is counseling strength and endurance and perseverance, even when they tell her that they're very worried about John the Baptist. And she basically says, well, he has to do what he has to do go back and tell him to, to, to keep doing what he has to do, uh, which is bringing him into direct clashes with the priestly class, and the priestly class are going to go to the Romans and ask the Romans to kill him. Um, but, and it's, again, it's interesting because she, they never blame Mariam for his fate. Um, she, she remains sort of the honored figure. The, um, there is something that um, I'm smiling because it's, uh, I, I, I found this in, in, when I was writing my book on rebellion. Um, I'm convinced that Aisha was the leader of the Battle of the Camel. Uh, and that she was actually, the, she's the one who led Talha and Zubair. And I think the Shia agree with that, and that's why they don't like Aisha. But anyway, um, but what's very interesting is that I found many reports in which Aisha uh, is inspired by Maryam in her rebellious role. Um, I mean, that's taken by Orientalists sometimes to, to, to exaggeration because I, I read an old German article that uh, Aisha wanted to 
declare herself a, a, a prophet like Maryam. But, I mean, there was no foundation for that. It was just like an orient typical Orientalist, like, you know, thing. But it's very interesting. I mean, it, it's... Uh, but at the same time, you, you had uh, the, the granddaughter of uh, Sukaina, the granddaughter of Hussein, who also, in her poetry, uh, it says that she, uh, and, and over her hairdo, Atturra Sukainiya, when they told her, you know, you're, you're, stop doing your hairdo um, and um, stop doing these, she, she would have poetry competitions at home. <clears throat> and reportedly, one of her poetry competitions, it was so crowded that her upper lever crumbled, crashed. Mm -hmm. And when it fell, it, it killed some people. So they told her, you know, stop doing your poetry competitions at your home. It's a health hazard. And she then cites, like, I am in the footsteps of Maryam. You know, how dare you tell me to stop doing my poetry competitions? So she was obviously inspiring, you know, both sides. Um, Islamic history needs to be rewritten. People we need good good historians who don't have an Orientalist frame of mind and who understand what it means to do scholarship and have integrity and have a thorough knowledge of the sources, published and unpublished, because our his our his our written history sucks. It, it, you know, it, it, hours and hours and hours reading secondary sources, 100 hours reading secondary sources is not worth one hour reading primary sources, good, good primary source. Also, I want to um, take this moment to let people know if they haven't heard of this or haven't taken the time to listen. Um, the Sheikh gave uh, an incredible halakha um, about women jurists in Islamic history, so very pious women, and he was uh, taking um, encyclo the, you know, encyclopedic references to women who lived in all ages and geographies in our history and went through and it was just so insightful and it's available on our SoundCloud channel um, and inshallah we also have plans to publish it in the future so it's again for it was amazing what women were able to accomplish and just reflecting on on those histories was very very valuable so okay um, next question um, even though both Jesus and John um, shared the same ending. Why did it have to be a virgin birth for Jesus, whereas for John it was a miraculous birth from a mother who I'm assuming was not a virgin? Also, can we infer from the same verse shared for John and Jesus that peace be upon me the day I was born and the day I die could be an evidence that Jesus was crucified like John was? Yeah, I was afraid I was going to get this question. Um, <laughs> what was the question? The 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 reference and in, in the the well the the part that I was particularly afraid of is that the peace be upon me the day I'm born, the day I die, and the day I'm resurrected. Um, because here is a reference to Jesus dying, um, and of course Muslim theologians. So okay, first let's break the question into several parts. Part is that. 
John is born to a miraculous birth to an old woman, while Jesus is born to a, a, a virgin Mary. Um, the role that John played in monotheism is very different than the role that Jesus played. In fact, Islamically, John is believed to basically have told his followers of that the Messiah was born, the Messiah being Jesus. And so John was a prophet that was directing the gaze towards a um, more foundational prophet, if you will, Jesus. John didn't have the miracles that Jesus had. John couldn't raise the dead. Um, John, in, in many ways, John was a prophet more like the reformer prophets, who was an outspoken against social injustice, was known for being a baptizer. He, that he believed in the, the purification of water as a symbolic act, but he was, and from an Islamic perspective, he was constantly telling people to follow Jesus, not follow him. Um, and so it is, the, from an Islamic perspective, it is Jesus who is the real inheritor of Moses in sense of affirming mo the monotheism of Moses and Islamically Jesus is the one who also tells his followers about the coming prophet from an Islamic person Ismail Ahmed that so John doesn't talk about a prophet named Muhammad who's coming but Jesus does. Um, now, the, the, so that's, that's the, the easy part. The hard part is this issue of, now, so if Muslim theological works spend a great deal of time talking about that, well, although Jesus says that peace upon me the day I'm born, the day I die, and the day that I'm resurrected that Jesus never died and that Jesus was raised and that Jesus is still alive. Um, okay, I'm going to get into trouble, but, uh, you know. Um, What's new? Yeah. <laughs> I, I was all due respect, that's not what I believe. Um, I don't believe that Jesus is alive. Um, uh, um, and I believe I am. There is a minority view in the Islamic tradition that says when Allah taught, says that they did not crucify him and they, they did not kill him, ولكن لهم that. It doesn't mean that Allah sent, made them crucify someone in Jesus' place because that would be unjust. 
for someone else to die uh, so Jesus can get away. But that um, there, there are a lot of ways that you can think you think you've killed me, but you actually haven't. You think you're torturing me, but you actually haven't. Because I've left my body. Um, and, I, and, I, and I mean this in, in every sense. You could crucify the body and you think the person is there. But Allah's mercy has lifted that, the soul of that person and you're just dealing with a corpse. Um, maybe an animated corpse, but just dealing with a corpse. Um, in, if you've seen people tortured, you might even have that experience yourself. You could see it. Um, and I believe that that's what Allah is talking about. I don't believe that Allah would allow someone to be crucified in Jesus' stead. Um, and I don't understand the literalism by which people insisted on taking this. It, my view is not entirely unprecedented. There is, it's a minority view in the Islamic tradition but I think, and I'm not forcing it on anyone, I might be completely wrong, Allah alam. But uh, I just, should be halahum, that they, they uh, you know, I can say, those who think that they executed Sayyid Qutb, should be halahum. They, they think they executed Sayyid Qutb, but I, uh, what they 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 haven't killed the man. Um, he he's a martyr, and he is far more grand than any of the people that think they've killed him. Um, Allah alam. I was afraid of that question, but <laughs> I mean, I, I it's not that I like to be different. I just like to be honest, and I've researched this for, for so many years and I've tried very hard to believe in the mainstream position. Um, I tried very hard to, to believe it, but I just ultimately couldn't swallow it. So was my apologies for all those who are going to hate me. <laughs> Okay, salam professor, and thanks for another amazing session. Is there any specific meaning we can extract from the miracle of Isa as speaking in the cradle? Does his precocious speech have a symbolic meaning? Um, well, I mean, it, there, there is a, the, you know, it has always been fascinating why uh, Maryam was not murdered by the priestly class because the priestly class didn't treat women who 
um, they suspected of being impure well. And in fact, stoning was, was quite common uh, at, at that time among the Israelites. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I mean, stoning to death, which they've done quite um, carelessly. And that's what was one of the objections that Jesus had to, to the practice that they, they 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 didn't even care very much about evidentiary standards. Um, so from there's there's this pragmatic thing is that something made these people stop in their tracks and not stone Miriam and not come back later and try to kill her although they continued to say that she's this and she's that so i mean for if you have a, a a a child that says something coherent i mean that would stop you so i can see this miracle as being a very awesome way to get these men to lay off um and uh, leave the poor woman alone um so that, that's one thing. Uh, but it is quite remarkable. Um, there is a minority view that says that when um, that Jesus didn't, didn't speak as an infant but spoke when he was two or three years old, but there is no basis for that. I mean, I don't know. Uh, uh, so I I'm, I'm, don't put much weight on, on that opinion. Um, but I I think it, the, this, the, the statement is, affirms that, that um, the moral principle itself that a child and, and must be a source, part of the ethical framework. And, and if, you, this, if you imagine the Quran is built ethics of a society and part of the necessary ethics for a society that a child must be a source of rahmah, mercy and compassion upon their parents and that regardless of the hardship and misery that their parents might be in because Mary was in a very difficult situation the child must always honor the parents because if children don't honor the parents the entire structure for upholding virtue and morality will fall apart. And I've always taken the declarations about John the Baptist and Jesus about their, what they say, because it's, you know, belief in God, and right after belief in God, I honor 
my parents. I honor my the, the, the and it, it's remarkable. But society. I mean, when when you read read enough history, you really realize that the first thing that starts undoing the fabric of a civilization. If if children no longer see a good reason to respect and dignify their parents, and then so much falls apart, um, including including the desire of parents to have children. Um, now, of course. It's reciprocal because, you know, parents also have to act in a virtuous and ethical way because uh, if you noticed the earmark of the parenting in the Quran is one in which parents, once they have their children, they sacrifice all for their children. Um, they're not egocentric or narcissistic. You know, they don't tell their kids, once you're 18, go, it's, you know, you're on your own. Um, or, you know, go work in a 7-Eleven to have pocket money. I, 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 I think these are all just... Do you have a question? Yeah. Um, Come up and, and you need okay. to speak it into the... My it's okay. Or you could just repeat what he says. No, it's okay. I have legs. I am able to walk. Express. How can you respect your parents when one of those parents is dishonorable? Great question. You know, um, if your parent is you don't respect what they do, but you treat them with respect. Meaning, um, you don't you don't obey them when they tell you to do something wrong. That's that's not respect. Doesn't mean obedience. There's a big difference between respect and obedience. Uh, I can disobey you, but I can still respect you. I can say, you know, I. I respect you, I respect the fact that you think you're right, but I am not going to do what you're telling me to do because I don't believe that this is the right thing. Um, now this is, I'm talking about it, it, parents that have, are dishonorable, meaning dishonest, or they, they, they live in a wrong way, or they lie, or they cheat, or they they commit a lot of injustice, uh, unfortunately, as we've seen a lot of parents these days. Um, but the, what you respect meaning that they still have rights that are given to them by God. So you don't yell at them, you don't strike them, you don't insult them. Um, Yes, you're not going to, you know, if they tell you to do something wrong, you're not going to do it. But that doesn't mean that you yell at them or you insult them or you strike them. 
And eventually, when they get old and they think back about their life and realize that they've messed up things and they will be very sorry and they will live in regret. Um, and they need their children, you help them as much as you can. You don't just ignore them so that they end up homeless and somewhere in some alley. Uh, Muslims don't do that. Um, but, you know, the, the, a lot of parents that are dishonorable, it's because their egos obscure their vision. And rest assured, the time will come, they will grow old, and they will think back, and they will regret all the garbage they've done. And um, um, you feel sad for them, because um, it, nothing is worse than to get to a point in your life where you're old and you've lost the respect of your children. That's the worst curse. And, um, and, and learn from what you've seen so you never do what they've done. Um, you know, the, it is quite true that the worst thing about abusive parents is that they curse their children to repeat their behavior. It's really true. So you have to be really diligent to never repeat what wrong you've seen them do. You just have to study it, reflect on it, and <coughs> vow in every whichever way never to do the same thing with your own children. Uh, because just think of how horrible for a child to go through when their parent is being so lousy. Um, it's so unfair. It's so unfair. Thank you. Good question. Excellent question. I mean, we have several other questions, but I'm also worried that we are getting close to Maghrib time. So we could either go another question and then pray, or if you want to take a few more questions, I don't know. Let's, I tell you what, let's pray, and then we'll come back, I'll take a couple more questions, and then we'll stop. Okay. So, okay, we'll pray Maghrib. Quickly. Everyone, everyone go pray Maghrib. I mean, no, we're going to pray Maghrib, but... <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll be back. Okay. Okay, well, one of, sorry, it's going to be just my choice on which one, so... Um, what does it mean specifically to bring happiness to others and is one of the reasons God created us to be happy? Question. Uh, okay, yeah, that's, um, I, I, I've, um, I've, um, one of, one of the things I, I really hope will, uh, uh, I've written an article about 
happiness in um, in Islamic theology and one of the things I hope that my articles will somehow be collected and published as a book because yes inshallah we are working on that too <laughs> um, that should be easy anyway happiness is is in itself uh, a form of what makes us special as human beings because our ability both to laugh and cry uh, as we've talked about in one of the earlier soar is uh, is cited by Allah as as part of the miracle of creation but especially, remember that it is a fundamental principle in Islamic ethics and law. Meaning harm in whatever form. And harm is whatever brings um, pain, and which includes all forms of misery. It, it becomes a priority to seek the removal of pain and to bring an end to pain. But beyond that, when um, when we talk about happiness, in, in the con especially in the context of this hadith and many of the other hadith like that, uh, it, it is whatever brings a human being, a sense of safety and security. Uh, so, making, addressing um, the material needs of someone is happiness. I mean, and it's a core happiness because, you know, if you're starving, obviously, or or if you make someone more secure in in their living conditions, that's a happiness. But even if you're on, even saying assalamu alaikum or smiling at someone, you're rewarded as a, at that because it is spreading a sense of goodness. It is bringing. Now, of course, we don't. We don't mean by happiness um, cheap distractions. I mean that's not the that's not the but but sometimes even cheap distractions you could be rewarded for. So if you if you go to a a a, um, a lonely child and you play a video game with them and you do it, especially because you want to be kind to that child, you're rewarded for that. Yes, it is a form of happiness. Um, we don't, it is not, we don't pursue happiness as the only moral virtue because we understand that there are other moral virtues that must enter into the balance. Um, 
But among the moral virtues that we do pursue is happiness. And that a, a, a Muslim is, um, the point of a Muslim is not to be miserable. And in fact, it is, if one of the things that strikes you about the seerah is that although these people, I mean, lived in persecution and after that, even after Medina, they were from one battle to the other and in a constant state of siege. But I'm, I'm always struck by the fact that these were fundamentally happy people. They were not. They they would they would cry out of reverence for Allah and out of love for Allah, but they were happy people. Uh, their affairs were not the affairs of people living in misery. And and somehow I, I again I think that's missed in the way that we think about Islam. Um, Any, any application of Sharia that brings shaka, that brings misery and sadness to people is illegitimate. I mean, I because it's a it's a Sharia is being used to bring harsh, and that cannot be legitimate. They're just simply not legitimate. Did you have a question? Okay. All right, last question. Um, thank you so much for yet another beautiful journey through the Quran. My question is pertaining to verse 87. Quote, no one will have power to intercede except for those who have permission from the Lord of mercy. One, what does it mean to, quote, unquote, have power to intercede? And two, what does it mean to have permission? And three, do we have any indication about who are those granted permission? I often struggle to understand the significance of intercession and would love to understand what intercession means in general in the chronic context and what it means in the context of this surah specifically. Well, the issue of shama shafa'a is a, a big theological question, but uh, we, we know that Shafa'at al-Anbiya is already something well established. The, 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 the intercession of prophets on uh, behalf of their ummah, on behalf of people. Um, one of the reasons that it is a very good idea to, um, to say things like sallallahu alayhi wa sallam as, as many salawat and taslim on the Prophet والسلام, is that you want the intercession of the Prophet on your on your behalf. And the more you do that, the more likely that the Prophet والسلام, would intercede on your behalf. But although there are theological debates that you know go back and forth, if I can summarize at least where, where I stand on the discussion of intercession. Um, we, there is ample evidence from the Quran and from the Sunnah that 
the pious people will be able, with Allah's permission, to intercede on behalf of loved ones. Um, now, so that does mean if if a a parent is particularly pious, they might be able to intercede on behalf of a child. If a child is particularly pious, they might be able to intercede on behalf of a parent. Um, a, a now, we believe that the principle of intercession cannot violate the principle of justice because Allah promised us justice. And and we know that Allah is just. So intercession that violates the principle of justice is completely inconsistent with Islamic theology. Because Islamic theology rejected the idea that someone can die for the sins of others and then suddenly you're just forgiven because someone suffered for your sins. But there are many forms of intercession which do not violate the principle of justice. And where, as a part of the heartfelt prayers of the pious, uh, could, inter could appeal to Allah. Uh, the the you know inter, the idea of intercession became exaggerated because in the in the modern age with the rise of the Salafi movement uh, Wahhabi movement in particular but Salafi movement more generally uh, there was a a, a very anti Sufi um, momentum. And of course, that Wahhabi movement took over Mecca and took over the Hijaz, and and um, part of the anti-Sufi rhetoric was to attack the concept of intercession and to do so so vehemently that it, it really went overboard. Um, you know, it, it while it's understandable to to want to combat the idea that just because you followed a qutb, that this qutb can decide that all his students may enter heaven regardless of their actions, because that, that's of course the corruption of the theology in itself. But I think that it, it ends up that we've raised the generation of Muslim Muslims uh, thoroughly confused about intercession, believing that all forms of intercession are unjust. And it doesn't take a lot of reflection to realize that that's not necessarily the case. Uh, and especially when if you, as we've studied in some surahs, if you read the Quran very carefully, that there is a premium on the hope that you would be able to enter heaven with your loved ones. Mm -hmm. And yes, enter heaven with your loved ones as long as doing so doesn't violate the principle of justice. And that's, that's very well supported in, in the tradition. And um, so it is one of the incentives for people 
to work very hard to be to improve their position with Allah is in the hope of being able to intercede for loved ones um, who um, who might have not had a fair opportunity in life. And there's nothing wrong with that. Alhamdulillah, thank you, that was beautiful. And thank you for, again, for an amazing session. I think everybody really is so grateful. So Alhamdulillah. And um, on that note, we will, inshallah, see you guys on Tuesday.